You know, every time we gather to worship, it's just a joy. It's a privilege. Mark has led us earlier to think about places in the world. And uh, we think about Pakistan, where it's not so easy to be a follower of Jesus today. We think about North Korea, and we think about places like Indonesia, and in parts, as many of you know, of Nigeria, and many places across the world. We have this tremendous freedom, don't we, to be here to lift our voices in song, led so ably and skillfully with heart and passion by wonderful musicians and singers. But you know, our worship is more than the song that we sing, or even the enthusiasm, the energy with which we sing. And that's what I want to talk to you about today, because I believe God would call us individually, all of us, to learn what it means to build an altar of worship. And to do that, I want to talk to you about some moments in the life of Abraham. Now, Abraham is a a significant character in the Bible, but throughout Christian history, he's such an important figure. His life was nomadic. God calls him out from his homeland to kind of go on this journey of constantly moving from one place to another. But what really marked his life was faith in God and devotion to God. They're two of many characteristics, but these really stand out in Abraham's life. But there was one priority in Abraham's life that has for many, many years stirred me and impacted me deeply. And I want to read to you from Genesis chapter 12, verses 7 and 8. Just a short reading. But yet in this short reading, we see... This one dimension, this one priority that Abraham has that marks him out as somebody God was walking with. So Genesis 12 verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. In the portion of scripture from around about Genesis 12 right through to almost the end of Genesis where Abraham's life is plotted for us. We see at least four occasions where the scriptures tell us he built an altar to the Lord. And it stirred me to think about saying some things to you today about worship. Things I've learned on my own journey. Things I think are the picture of how God met with men and women of old, certainly in the Old Testament. Because sometimes for some of us, We think worship is what we do today in church. It's what we do when we gather, and it's such a joy to see this place fall and to have enjoyed that first service. And and isn't it stirring to be with other people and encouraged to sing and to worship? But I want to say to you today, I think worship is so much more than what we do together today, than our singing, and I love singing Long before I ended up being a preacher and a pastor, I was a worshipper and a worship leader in the good old days. 
But you know, ultimately what we find is that God calls for more than a song from us. It's almost like the song is the expression of the more than within us that he is looking for. And altars, when you look through the Old Testament, they form a really important part of the Old Testament journey. Think about Noah, who's called by God to build this huge boat, this ark, and through it survives with his family this phenomenal flood. And of course, we grew up in Sunday school knowing that uh, Noah took these animals two by two into the ark, and I'm sure the animals all thought, this is great, we're surviving the flood. Until they got out on Ararat, the other end, and he took some of the animals and sacrificed them. And they thought, well, that's not fair. We got through the flood, but he was taking the best of what he had and in thanksgiving, acknowledging what God had done. And then we look at characters like Abraham, we'll look at, and we'll talk a little bit about Jacob, but about Moses, who built altars to the Lord, and Joshua, and Gideon, who built altars by taking the Asherah poles, which were literally like, we would understand, totem poles that you might see in a, a, an old Western movie that Red Indians might have used, and he took those Asherah poles and he broke them down and he created an altar where he worshipped God on the broken altars of the false gods. And then there was Gideon. And then there was David. Right at the end of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 24, prophet comes to David and says, you need to go to the, th- the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite, and build an altar to the Lord. And so David does that. He goes to the, 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 the threshing floor of the Jebusite around. Now, by the way, the Jebusites, that's where Jerusalem is now. That was the city that became the city of David. This altar was also the location. It's believed that Abraham offered a sacrifice, was prepared to sacrifice his own son until God provided a ram. And he goes to Arauna and he says, I want to buy your threshing floor, where they used to thresh the corn and the wheat. I want to buy it from you so I can build an altar to the Lord. Now the king is there. As if King Charles came and said, I want to buy this off you, you know. And and David says to him, I want to pay you for this. And around says, I can't ask you for anything. You're the king. You can have it. And David's response is so important. He says this to Arana. I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. Worship doesn't cost us nothing, it costs us everything. And we see these altars that men and women of old created for their encounters with God. And I want to give you a couple of truths today before we joyfully celebrate the wonderful baptism of these folks down here together. The first thing I want to say to you is that Altars are built by those who choose to be near to God. That's what Abraham does. Abraham has made a choice. We find here in Genesis that he built an altar to the Lord. It was something he chose to do. Do you know, long before tabernacles and temples and church buildings such as we're blessed with today, men and women lay before God on their own. They walked with God on their own. In fact, if you go back to the stories of the patriarchs, men like Noah and Abraham and Moses, you'll find that worship was a family experience. 
Abraham was the worship leader of his family. He took the responsibility for ensuring his family honoured and worshipped God. But there weren't constructions where they did that. He would build an altar. And long before priests and prophets and pastors, men and women met with God on their own. And I want to say to you today, friends here at Kensington Temple and those watching online, no one can draw near to God for you. You make that choice. We thank God for leaders. I thank God for the men and women over the story of my life who've impacted me deeply. But you know, I learned very young, thankfully, through the influence of great leaders, I had to learn what it was to meet God for myself. I grew up in a Christian home. I'm third, gener- third generation Pentecostal, and right back to the Welsh revival. My mom was Welsh, and her family, and we have a tremendous story of, of God bringing salvation to our family in the third generation, but that's not enough. My heritage. I grew up in a Christian home. That's not enough. I went to a great Elim church as a young boy and grew up there. That's not enough. And at the age of 16, having given my life to Jesus at nine, but doing the normal thing that church kids do, wandering here, wandering there, straying here, straying there, I met the presence of God in a way I will never forget for the rest of my life. I was at a Bible week in Harrogate Showground. And as people were worshipping and singing a song that went, along, so went Hosanna, I just knew the presence of God and it touched my life. And within two years, I was off to Bible college and on this journey that I've been on with the Lord because we choose if we meet God. And I want to say to you as well that no one can be to blame if we don't connect with God. Now, that's a harder one, isn't it? Well, didn't you know, Stuart, how much they hurt me? I want to say to you today, we must never let anyone or anything get in the way of us experiencing encounter God for ourselves. You're in church today, friends, and you may, may have found this all quite a bit strange, a bit unusual. I want to say to you today, God wants to meet with you individually. Do you know, he, I, I look out here and I see this wonderful congregation. Do you know what he sees? This amazing gathering of individual people he wants to meet and encounter with. And I've learned over my life that who we are on our own with God is who we are. It's where we're defined. It's where we experience his love. It's where we find that sense of God connecting with me personally. And we believe in church. and We believe in gathered community. But we believe that every single one of us is called to be a priest before God. To be men and women who experience God for ourselves and carry his life and his presence. Do you know we were all created to worship as humans? Do you know every human worships something? Here we are in this great historic building. The the story of what God's done in this building over generations is wonderful. And just down the road there's great churches and right across this city there's great churches. But across this capital city of our great United Kingdom, there are other worship venues today. Did you know that? Sports stadiums, football grounds and rugby grounds, shopping centres, concert venues, where people will be worshipping. Do you know how they worship? 
They take a wallet, they take a purse, and they slip out their Visa card or their Barclay card, and they, they, they head up to Oxford Street, and they, they go and they worship because they want that handbag. Well, not me. Um, you know, perhaps Amanda. No, no, for me, I, I turn on the TV, and I, you know, uh, I just watch Manchester United. I knew that was fatal. But you're a forgiving crowd. But I've been there in the stadiums over the years. And they do what we do, you know. They sing. And they do a few other things as well. But people are worshipping today. And you get to choose who you worship. You get to choose how you worship. And today God's calling every one of us as men and women to say, the first call of worship in my life is Jesus. Right at the centre, right at the core. And that's why Abraham built this altar. See, the enemy, Satan, has a strategy. He wants to steal your worship. If you look right back, and I've got to be careful not to get carried away here and use too much time, but right back, before time began, he was the worship leader in heaven, Lucifer. And he fell because he wanted the worship for himself he saw God get. And ever since time began, he has been trying to steal our worship by diverting it to lesser gods. By pointing our attention to iconic figures or things we want or places we want to be. All the kind of aspirations in our commercial, contemporary world where the gods of commercialism fill our world as they fill our TVs and our shops. And we choose who we worship. And Abraham said, I'm building an altar. But you know also, altars are built from the broken pieces of life. I find this one of the most impacting thoughts that I often talk about. Because it's true. When Abraham built an altar, he just gathered the rubble around him. He just gathered the rocks and the stones and the bits of wood just that lay there. Large boulders and small boulders, and he piled them up and made an altar. We read in Exodus 20 where God instructs Moses to build an altar. He says in Exodus 20, verse 24 and 25, Build for me an altar made of earth and offer your sacrifices to me. Your burnt offerings and peace offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. Build my altar wherever I cause my name to be remembered, and I will come to you and bless you. If you use stones to build my altar, make sure, uh, you, sorry, you only use natural uncut stones. Do not shape the stones with a tool, for that would make the altar unfit for holy use. God is saying to Moses, I don't want you to get a hammer and a chisel and do the great work of a craftsman mason and make them nice and fine. I don't want you to build something for me that's overlaid with gold. I want you to gather the normal rubble stuff, the ordinary basic materials that are around you. Because at the heart of it, we need to know God is not dazzled by what dazzles our world. What he really wants is the undressed, uncut humility and honesty of our hearts and our lives. Think about Jacob. 
who's a bit of a schemer, a supplanter, a bit of a deceiver. His whole life has been deceiving people. And God gets a hold of him one night and he puts a stone down for a pillar. Not very comfortable, but that's what he did. And he has this remarkable dream and God visits him in this dream. And he wakes up the next morning. We read about it in Genesis 28, verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I wasn't even aware of it. But he was also afraid and said, What an awesome place this is. It's none other than the house of God, the very gateway of heaven. The next morning, Jacob got up very early. He took the stone he had rested his head against and he set it upright as a memorial pillar. Then he poured olive oil over it. He named the place Bethel, which means the house of God. These altars where men and women of old met God weren't ornate and elaborate. They were very, very ordinary. Just like your life. And I can tell you, just like my life. I have this imagination and I, I'm pretty sure I'm right that in these moments where they were building an altar, they were gathering these stones and with tears streaming down their face, they just reached for God. I think of Abraham who in Genesis 19 is called by God to take his son, his only son, the son of the promise that he'd waited till he was a hundred to inherit and to take him to Moriah and there to sacrifice him to the Lord. Do you think that was easy? Do you know what he says? Just as he, he's gathered then, he's taken some servants with him who are taken some camels, some donkeys, some horses, and they've got the wood on there, and they've got all these things. And he says to these servants, he said, you wait here, I and the boy will go yonder, we will worship, and then we will return to you. You're going to worship. What are you going to do? You're going to sing shout to the Lord together, I'm Mariah. No, 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 I'm going to build an altar. I'm going to take the most precious thing in my life, the son I've longed for, and I'm going to lay him on that altar, and I'm going to raise the knife over him. And if God requires of me to sacrifice him, the writer of the Hebrews who recounts this story says that Abraham's faith was so strong, he believed if he had to sacrifice Isaac, God would raise him from the dead. Because not only did he have devotion, he had faith. And actually the Hebrew writers, and figuratively speaking, that's what he did. Because just as he's about to drive the knife into Isaac, a voice says, now I know that you love me. And then in the thicket, there is a ram caught. It's a picture of Jesus, the sacrifice for our sin. And he sacrifices the ram. And do you know what he called that place? Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. I want to say to you today that, that some of these places of sacrifice are the places where our grief and our disappointment and our sickness and our rejection and our anxiety and our fear and all kinds of negative emotions. We don't, God doesn't despise those. He says, gather them together. Pull those things together together. Friends, you will not know. Only my wife will know and understand the broken, the times where we've just wept before the Lord. We didn't know what to do. The seasons I've been through and I've just had to go before the Lord and weep and say, God, I don't know what to do but to worship you, to lay it all out there again and say, I'm yours and this is yours. 
I'm so powerfully reminded of the woman who Jesus meets one day. Jesus has been invited to the house of Simon the Pharisee. Now, Simon was a Pharisee, which meant he probably wasn't as favourably disposed to Jesus as we think. And he decides to throw a dinner party. And he invites Jesus and presumably a number of other guests. And Jesus was regarded by his followers and others as a rabbi, a teacher to be followed. And there was a customary thing that should always happen when a rabbi entered your home. In this country, when a pastor enters your home, you get the teapot out and the cake out. All right, that's what you do, okay? I didn't get to be this man of substance without a few pastoral visits, I can tell you. <laughs> but when a rabbi entered your home, there were three things that were customary you did to show honour to that rabbi. You wash their feet. You kiss them on both cheeks with the kiss of peace. And you took a little fragrance, something like an attar of roses, and you anointed them. But if you read the text in Luke's Gospel, you'll find that Simon did none of that for Jesus. So we know he didn't really have Jesus there to honour him. He had him there to trap him. And what he'd done, he'd laid out the dinner in his courtyard and to show off that he could hold a dinner like this, he invited all the village to come and stand around the edge of the courtyard and watch what a great man Simon the Pharisee is with all his special guests. And they're eating dinner. And we don't know what the conversation was, but we know this. All of a sudden, somebody breaks from the crowd. It's a woman. It's not just any woman. It's the woman who locally sold her body to provide her income. She's got a little vial around her neck of perfume that was how she plied her trade. She would put it on to attract men over and above maybe the other women who worked in the community in the same kind of way. She breaks from the crowd. Simon's horrified. His dinner party is about to collapse. Shock, horror, such shame. And before you know it, Jesus sitting on the floor with his legs filled behind him as all the guests would have done. She's on her knees behind him and she's crying and crying and crying so profusely that the tears are falling onto his feet and she's just crying. She says nothing. She's just crying. And then she does something even more shocking. She takes the perfume from around her neck and she puts it on his feet. And then she does something even more shocking. Because for women of Jesus' day, it was expected you wear your hair up. And she unfurled her hair. Look, I've done it before. I'd need a wig. She unfurls her hair and she uses her hair to dry his feet. Tears. Something about him. Jesus doesn't turn to her and say, excuse me, madam, I'm, I'm terribly sorry, but I'm a respected rabbi. This is shocking behaviour. What will people think of me? He doesn't say a word. Just lets her do it. But Simon's thinking that. <laughs> you don't think something in Jesus' company without him knowing what you're thinking. This is the Son of God. This is the omniscient one. This is God in flesh who knows everything. And he perceives Simon's thoughts. And he says, hey, Simon, you didn't give me a kiss. You didn't anoint me. 
You didn't wash my feet, but she has. She knows who I am. She understands what I can do for her. And he says this, to those who are forgiven little, they love little. But those who know they're forgiven much, love much. You know what she was doing? She was building an altar with her sin and her pain. She was taking a broken reputation. Anybody feel your reputation's been damaged? She took this broken reputation, her sense of failure, her rejection, her disappointment, the abuse she'd experienced. And she finds herself now at this moment, I would really love to fall to my knees to illustrate. The problem is I might not be able to get back up again. So imagine. She falls to her knees and she builds an altar. Not of stones, but of hurt and pain. And Jesus says to her daughter, go and sin no more. He liberates her and releases her. And I want to say today, some of us here, we, we, we feel that sense of failure. I'm putting my hand up and tell you, you not know the times I feel I've failed God. You'll find me honest with you. I feel so often every week, somehow I find myself doing something I never intended, thinking something I never planned, saying something that wasn't on the agenda. And I feel I've failed God and I've let him down. But I want you to know today, he never despises or casts us out. Says Jesus says to himself, a bruised reed or a smouldering flax, he will not snuff out. And we come to him in the brokenness of what we feel. That's the place we worship. We all come like that, you know? We all come broken. Nobody has ever come to God in a perfect condition. Not one. Not one. The Bible says there's no, no one righteous no one, the only righteous person who ever lived is the Son of God who came into this world to be our righteousness. We cannot be accepted before God without him. But because of him, everything we've ever done, past, present and future, was dealt with at the cross of Calvary. And the tomb today is empty, but in the presence of God, the Son of God occupies a throne and he's praying for you, sister. And he's praying for you, brother. He's interceding for you. He's saying to the Father, they've committed their life to me. And he's praying for us. Because we put our trust in Jesus. And we know we're not perfect. But when I was growing up, I sang it earlier. I may not risk it at the moment. But when I was growing up, we used to sing lots of songs like we do now. And there was one that simply said, He is all my righteousness. I stand complete in him and worship him. I want you to know today that your righteousness, Isaiah tells us, is just like filthy rags. But today we all stand on the righteousness of Jesus. We can come to him with our brokenness. He welcomes us. He invites us. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden. Do you remember that story? We only get two chapters of the Bible where it was good and then it goes bad. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, it goes bad in Genesis 3 and it gets good again in Revelation 20 and 21. And in between, we're struggling with all of this. And God walks in the garden in the cool of the night and he says this, Adam, where are you? Because they'd failed and they were hiding. I don't know if you know, but the omniscient, all-knowing God didn't struggle to know where Adam was. And he wasn't thinking, you've got me today, Adam. It was that tree last night, you've got me today. 
It wasn't an inquiry about where Adam was. It was an invitation for Adam to step out and come to the Father. Because cleansing was only possible when you step out and you come to the Father. I got the privilege of meeting on a few occasions and hearing the great Reinhard Bonke, who once said this, I heard him say it, the Holy Spirit is not repelled by your weaknesses. He is attracted to them. He's not repelled by your weaknesses. He's attracted to them. Just think about that for a moment, friends. Just, I'm just thinking of one of you, your testimony earlier. Your testimony standing here. I want to say to you today, none of your weaknesses put him off. He's attracted to you. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Don't we all struggle thinking God couldn't love me? Because look at my life. Look at the mess I've made of it. Look at what I've done. I try my best. I come to church. I try my best to put a face on and put a front on and do my best. But I want you to, to know today, whatever the condition of your life, God is attracted to you. And he has provided in his son Jesus everything that you need for life and godliness. Everything you need to know him and walk with him is found in Jesus. And he comes to meet us at the altars of our brokenness where we choose just to gather all those things that we think repel God from us and we say, Lord, meet me with these things. And the final thing I want to say to you today is altars are temporary and need to be rebuilt constantly. Genesis 12, 7 tells us that Abraham built an altar there and he went from there on towards the hills of Bethel and there he built an altar. He went from there to there, to there, and every place he went, he built an altar. And I only imagine that this nomadic life, and they would gather up his tents, and he had servants, and he had cattle. He was a wealthy man, and he felt led to move maybe 10 miles, 20 miles, who knows. And they would arrive, and he would say, this is the location we're going to stay at. And he would say to his servants, can you guys put the tents up? And to another group of servants, can you... Build the pen for the cattle. What are you going to do, Father Abraham? I'm going to go and build an altar. As the first choice of every place in my life. Yeah. Not just today here in church. What about tomorrow, Monday? Very often driving from my home in Birmingham down to Malvern, where our Elim International Centre is, I just build an altar in the car. I just have that music on. I promise you, I'll keep my eyes on the road and keep to the speed limit. But I just say, Lord, I'm building an altar of worship today. I need you. I need you here. I need you now. And, and this is just so wonderful to be here with you and experience the presence of God. But I can guarantee tomorrow morning on that journey, I'm going to need him. <clears throat> I know what my diary says is ahead of me. Some things I'm looking forward to, some things not so much, maybe. But I know this, if I build an altar and give it to him, I can walk into this week with confidence. He is with me and he is with you, sister. He's with you, brother. Because worship is not just for one moment or one setting. It's for all of our lives. Every day, every moment, every experience, wherever you work, even if you're going home today to a family that not only don't know God and love him, but they're against your very faith in him. 
can I give you a bit of advice? Build an altar. Just find some space in your world and gather your disappointments, your concerns, and build an altar. Because worship is about consecration here and consecration now. And I've walked with the Lord for many years. It'll be a couple of years' time, it'll be 50 years since I gave my life to Jesus. But it's no good me looking back to those moments when I met him. And there have been some wonderful moments. Sometimes they've been in church, in a conference. As we've led church, we've, Amanda and I can think of many times in the joy of leading local churches, as I did for 30 years, those moments we met with God. But you know what? Actually, some of the most powerful moments, I was on my own. I remember many years ago when our middle son, Gareth, was six years old. He went to a birthday party just up the road and they were on a bouncy castle, the kids, and he jumped off to get away from some guys spraying water. He was six years old and he hit, top, bottom line is he broke his leg, had a spiral fracture of his left leg. And I remember that night, we were, he was in the hospital, Birmingham Children's Hospital, and um, Amanda was pregnant with our now daughter, Lydia. So she, she was staying with him in the hospital, it seemed much better. I had church the next day and I, I phoned my associate and said, can we just switch around? You preach in the morning, I'll preach in the evening. And I remember driving through, and if you've ever been to Birmingham, we, we've got these tunnels in Birmingham, probably not as many as in London, but one's called the Queen's Way, and it's the longest tunnel in Birmingham. It's not particular, but it's long enough. And on that Friday, I prepared my message, and my message was from Acts, where Paul and Silas are in prison, and it was called Praising God in the Dark. And I hit that tunnel... And I began to cry because my son was in pain. And if you'd given me the chance to swap places and have that broken leg, I'd have done it without a second thought. And I would still do it today for any of my kids or my grandchildren, willingly. But I began to sing. And I'll tell you what I did. I shouted at the top of my voice, Satan, you touch my family. and I'm going to sing more and louder and longer and stronger all the way home, six miles from my home. I sang and I sang and I sang because we can build an altar anywhere, in any moment, in any experience, whatever's going on in our life. And I tell you today, in these moments we've got left, just a few moments, we can build an altar. We can make a decision. It's him and nothing else. Everything else is a bonus. If I got him, everything else is a bonus. My family is the best bonus I could ever dream of. My friends, the best bonus. But I cannot live without him. And I don't want to ever try. I do not want one day of my life without the confidence of knowing he's with me and he's for me and he's with you today. And he's for you.